Welcome to Surgical Readings from SRGS, a podcast brought to you by the American College of Surgeons. I'm your host, Dr. Rick Green, and in this series, we will talk to the editors and experts featured in Selected Readings in General Surgery, a publication that highlights highly relevant and practice-changing information from the world's most prominent medical journals. As busy professionals, we don't always have time to read the most current studies. The goal of this podcast is to bring that information to you, providing key takeaways, insights, and perspectives from leading authorities in all surgical specialties and multidisciplinary areas that affect the surgical patient. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and not necessarily that of the American College of Surgeons. This is Dr. Rick Green. I'm welcoming you to Selected Readings uh, for our uh, Surgical Readings and General Surgery. And it's again my great pleasure to have Dr. Zachary Deitch with us for this uh, discussion of uh, Volume 2 of Liver Disease. And Zach is assistant professor at Northwestern. He's also in the Division of Transplantation. Zach, it's a pleasure to have you back with us. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, there's a great amount of wonderful information in, uh, in our second volume of, uh, of liver topics uh, in SRGS. And so uh, let's get right into it. Uh, there's a lot of interesting things, uh, certainly for uh, our general surgeons and, and others to, to talk about. One of the things we're going to touch on uh, is uh, the management of liver trauma. And of course, this is becoming even more important, uh, especially in, with penetrating injuries to, to the liver. And I was wondering, Zach, if we could talk first uh, specifically uh, about the management strategies of penetrating injury. Uh, and then talk a little about blunt injury. Uh, we've seen a great change uh, over the last few years in the use of interventional radiology techniques and geoembolization. I was wondering if you would comment about when we should use these non-operative techniques in thinking about both penetrating and blunt injury to the liver. Well, that's a great question. You know, in my field, transplant surgery, we, we, we can't do our job without interventional radiology. And I think the same is true in trauma surgery as well these days. So for in instances when surgeons do not find themselves in the operating room for other reasons in the setting of blunt or penetrating trauma, and you have a traumatic liver injury, you know, non-operative management is often successful in managing liver trauma. And IR can play a crucial and key role in this, particularly when there's active extravasation uh, demonstrated on, for example, CT angiography. Okay, that's, that's great. That gets us uh, really going uh, in the right direction. One of the things that we see, though, after uh, IR techniques sometimes is bile leaks uh, as a complication. I wonder if you could comment on that and how we should manage bile leaks after uh, IR management. Sure. So I think, I think you know, evidence has, has clearly demonstrated that embolization should be, should be performed when there's, you know, evidence of active extravasation. So we, we shouldn't proceed with blind embolization um, because uh, this does raise, you know, raise the uh, odds of developing ischemic injury to the liver, and this can promote, um, you know, uh, bile leaks and other complications, uh, hepatic necrosis and so forth. Now, these complications may just result 
also as a result of the the injury itself and the and the um, uh, traumatic injury. Um, but when bio leaks do manifest, uh, usually this is in you know subsequent days. Uh, it's important to achieve source control. This this can often be done with percutaneous drainage, um, but in um, uh, you know, when, when more serious complications develop, biliary sepsis and peritonitis, then, then a trip to the operating room may very well be, be warranted. Um, I think in many cases, um, bio leaks after traumatic injury can be managed uh, without, without a trip to the OR, without hepatic resection, um, but it is crucial to have advanced endoscopists available um, who can um, both provide uh, diagnostic and therapeutic intervention with ERCP and stenting if needed. And um, sometimes the combination of that with a sphincterotomy can decompress the biliary tree and, and provide a definitive solution. So in those cases, though, that we have to go to the operating room, there is a decision tree here regarding uh, packing damage control, as we call it, uh, versus uh, resective techniques, hepatotomy. Uh, give us a little insight as to when a damage control should be done and, and not uh, go for a, a big resection uh, of the liver. So I think you know, evidence clearly demonstrates that um, an intraoperative uh, uh, resection at the time of um, you know, uh, trauma X-LAP is associated with very poor outcomes. Um, conversely, when, when patients can be managed and bleeding controlled with um, aggressive packing um, and with a planned re-expiration in two to three days, uh, outcomes uh, tend to be much better with re-bleed rates. Obviously, there's some selection bias. More severe injuries are going to be tougher to control with, um, with uh, packing, but um, that, that should probably be the, the goal of the damage control laparotomy, get out of the OR, prevent acidosis, hypothermia, hypothermia coagulopathy. Um, if that can be done. Now, in circumstances where um, bleeding cannot be controlled with packing, um, it, the, you know, uh, obviously outcomes are going to be quite poor, but have to focus on getting um, vascular control. So in bleeding emanating from, from a parenchymal injury, um, you know, um, uh, performing Pringle maneuvers can slow bleeding from, from uh, portal vein injuries. Um, if you have a hepatic vein injury, um, this is going to be more, maybe more challenging to control uh, and, and have to get total vascular control, uh, including the suprahepatic and infrahepatic capa. This is obviously not, not an easy scenario to manage in, in the trauma X-LAP setting. So to summarize uh, what you've said, in, in the modern era, uh, certainly interventional radiology is the way to go. Uh, with uh, less uh, opportunities for, for resection. So I think this is a, a, a real plus and it's covered beautifully in our selected readings in general surgery. Let's transition a little uh, to cystic disease of the liver. Uh, we recognize there are simple cysts, there's polycystic disease. Uh, what would be the management uh, for the surgeon of a uh, cystic uh, process in the liver and when does that need surgical uh, inter uh, management itself? Sure. Good question. So, um, most cysts that that um, that we'll encounter um, are are simple hepatic cysts, which are fairly common, perhaps in twenty percent of the population. These are most often discovered incidentally and are asymptomatic. And for true simple cysts, um, often no in intervention is is necessary. Um, you know, the key here is um, ensuring that um, simple cysts. Um, 
are in fact simple cysts and don't have any concerning features. And so it's important to obtain high quality um, liver um, protocol CT or MRI to exclude the um, presence of atypical features that would raise concerns for a different process, such as a cyst adenoma that may require a resection to exclude the possibility of the potential for malignant transformation. Yeah, in, in polycystic liver disease, I know there might even be a role specifically in your field for transplantation. When should that be entertained in somebody with polycystic disease of the liver? Sure. So in short, polycystic liver disease is characterized often with diffuse involvement of cystic lesions. These can be managed with fenestration when there's a dominant cyst that might be responsible for symptoms such as early satiety, pain, malnutrition, etc. In addition, resection is also an option. This can reduce hepatomegaly and um, symptoms as well, but often uh, isn't sufficient. And so we consider patients for transplants when they are suffering significant sequelae, have diffuse um, uh, liver involvement where fenestration or resection is not going to provide durable improvement in symptoms. And there are actually provisions for meld exception. So patients with, with um, significant sequelae from this disease can be transplanted faster because their native meld scores are often uh, uh, normal or inadequate to, to be transplanted. That's excellent. Let's talk a little about liver abscess. This is something that the uh, surgeon will be called upon. And we know that there are specific pyogenic abscesses, there are amoebic abscesses, uh, and this has changed a lot over the last several decades. What should be the approach for someone that you feel has a cryptogenic, let's say, liver abscess? You don't know where it's coming from, but you know you have to manage it surgically. Sure. So I think it starts with, um, you know, a good history and physical understanding risk factors. Obviously, the most common lesions that we will encounter um, here in the United States are going to be pyogenic liver abscesses. So these can most commonly come from other interdominal sources or the biliary tree. Um, so starting with uh, high quality imaging, uh, getting patients initiated on antibiotics, um, and um, uh, these often you know, next step will be percutaneous drainage. Um, you know, small lesions, three centimeters or less, can probably be managed uh, with antibiotics alone in most circumstances. Uh, most other lesions can be managed without surgery. Um, however, you know, very large, complicated abscesses with septations and those that are not adequately <clears throat> drained with um, percutaneous approach may rarely require surgery. Excellent. Uh, so let's, let's go on and talk now about some benign neoplasms that we see. Hemangiomas, of course, occur. Is there a role ever for surgical resection of hemangiomas? There can be rarely uh, indications where there are mangiomas that are quite large and causing symptoms, um, but the, these, these cases are fairly few and far between, and there's uh, low risk of um, or, or essentially no risk of malignant transformation or bleeding, uh, as you might see with hepatic adenomas. Um, so um, most of the time, these can be managed with, with surveillance. And if there's no um, change in size or concerning features, then um, these can usually just be observed. So the two that we really tend to uh, see more are focal uh, nodular hyperplasia and hepatic adenoma. So let's talk about FNH. How do we diagnose uh, a patient with FNH? So these, these can usually be diagnosed with um, high quality liver protocol cross-sectional imaging. Um, so these lesions are 
composed of essentially normal hepatocytes that are separated by fibrous septa, and, and they tend to have a central scar, characteristic central scar um, of fibrous bile ductules. Um, these, these features are often evident on um, CT scan. Um, and in the, in the setting of a true FNH, um, you know, again, these, these often rare, rarely need resection or surgical intervention. Um, the situations in which um, surgery may be appropriate is, again, in the presence of atypical features or when uh, one can't exclude the possibility of, of um, a potentially malignant lesion or, or uh, uh, an adenoma, uh, pedicellular carcinoma, um, sometimes we can see a very rarely a, something called a fibrolamellar variant of HCC, which, which can resemble an FNH. Those are great points. Uh, the one we really are concerned about uh, associated with cancer, of course, is hepatic adenoma. Uh, so I, I wondered if you would talk a little about that, uh, you know, the, the indications for surgical resection and uh, some of the associated findings of an hepatic adenoma. Sure. The, um, yes, as you mentioned, so hepatic adenomas have a risk for um, malignant transformation or uh, bleeding. Those are the, the two kind of most fierce, feared complications of hepatic adenomas. The approach, you know, these are uh, classically described as um, uh, being estrogen sensitive. So in patients who present with, um, uh, on, uh, with, with hepatic adenoma on um, estrogen-containing medications, these should certainly be stopped. Most commonly, this is, um, you know, women with on oral contraceptives. And the approach for lesions in women and men uh, differs um, somewhat. So um, for women with lesions less than five centimeters, um, these can be observed uh, and followed with serial imaging and you know, every six months or a year. And if there are no changes or no, no rapid growth uh, and the lesions remain less than five centimeters, uh, imaging frequency can certainly be spaced out. Now for men, um, Typically, the presence of hepatic, hepatic adenoma is an indication for a surgical resection because of the possibility for um, malignant transformation. And certainly the risk of uh, rupture of hepatic adenomas uh, during pregnancy has been seen. And uh, that's, that's uh, something else that we need to be uh, cognizant of. Um, metastatic disease of the liver really has uh, changed in its approach. And uh, I wonder if uh, you would talk a little about uh, management uh, in colorectal cancer, because there are several issues here. When do we approach the liver? When do we approach the primary tumor? What is your recommendation? What does the literature tell us? Again, good question. So um, you know, I think the, the uh, nuances and um, uh, potential to per kind of personalize treatment here uh, have really evolved significantly, and they speak to the importance of a true multidisciplinary approach to um, patients with colorectal cancers and hepatic metastases. So these teams should involve um, liver surgeons, colorectal surgeons, medical oncologists, radiation oncologists, um, uh, and, um, and radiologists to help plan multidisciplinary approaches. And a one-size-fits-all approach does not necessarily, you know, it kind of is beyond the scope of what we're able to cover today. But um, in, in short, um, um, 
you know, we have considerations about um, margins and in general, folks are moving towards parenchymal sparing resections of hepatic metastases. So um, R0 resections with um, one millimeter margins seem to have comparable or um, uh, better outcomes than um, classically described uh, one centimeter margins for, for resections. Um, the timing of whether uh, paddock resection or um, uh, should be, should be um, uh, come before resection of the primary lesion uh, at the same time or afterwards um, is, is really a decision that, that needs to be uh, individualized based on the, on the um, scenario and in consultation with other um, specialists. Right, and this is really a role for multidisciplinary discussion. I wondered if you could just discuss briefly uh, embolization techniques as an adjunct to resection. Is there a role for that? Absolutely. So for patients with um, heavy burden of um, metastatic disease who are facing um, the need for uh, extended liver resections, we start to worry about remnant liver volume and whether patients will have enough remnant liver to survive the perioperative period. So a healthy liver um, in a healthy patient um, should regenerate. And the key is leaving them with enough hepatic reserve to survive the perioperative pe period. So in general, that number is somewhere around 20 to 30% of, of a healthy liver. Now, if a patient's um, uh, received um, neoadjuvant chemotherapy or has other risk factors, uh, uh, fatty infiltration, liver disease, et cetera, that, that number needs to be higher. So um, in situations where proposed resections would potentially leave patients with too little hepatic reserve, um, portal vein embolization is an option that, that tends to have fairly good results. When that falls short, um, there are additional approaches, so uh, portal vein ligation or procedures called, uh, something called an ALPS procedure, which is a portal vein ligation and staged hepatectomy, where in the first stage, the portal vein to the disease segment of liver to be resected is ligated, the parenchyma is divided, and at a second stage um, procedure, the uh, resection is completed after the remnant liver has hypertrophied. This tends to result in greater hypertrophy, but uh, the trade-off is greater morbidity and mortality and, and fewer patients proceeding to completion. Yeah, your point about avoiding liver failure for resecting too much liver is, is, is really important. You know, although the um, colorectal cancer, of course, gives us the greater opportunities of metastatic disease, there are other lesions I wonder if you would speak for a moment about neuroendocrine tumors, both uh, from the pancreas perhaps or the GI tract. Is there a role for resection in those diseases? Absolutely. The biggest difference I think between addressing hepatic metastases of neuroendocrine tumors is that the R0 resection is not mandatory for patients to, to derive clinical benefits. Um, obviously outcomes, um, long-term outcomes are, are worse once neuroendocrine tumors have metastasized to the liver, but uh, debulking procedures in which 75% um, or more of uh, hepatic metastases can be resected uh, do show benefit for patients. Well, Zach, this has been a, a great discussion of our uh, segment two of liver disease. We've been talking today with Dr. Zach Deach, who's assistant professor of surgery at Northwestern in the Division of Transplantation. Zach, thanks so much for being with us on Surgical Readings. Thanks again for having me. I really appreciate it. 
Thank you for joining us on Surgical Readings from SRGS, a podcast brought to you by the American College of Surgeons. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Please let your friends, trainees, and colleagues know about the podcast. On social media, use the hashtag Surgical Readings. You can subscribe to Selected Readings in General Surgery at facs.org slash srgs. Options are available for individuals, institutions, and residents. I'm Dr. Rick Green. Until next time, thank you for listening and learning.